Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session thanks to cpdjunkie.com.au. Do you stop breathing for more than 10 seconds, more than five times an hour? I certainly don't, but anyone with sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea does. Some of them, it can be well over 30 times an hour. Can you imagine what that does to your body? It's pretty serious stuff and it's something that we can at least identify and help facilitate the treatment. We can't diagnose it of course but us understanding it as dentists is a crucial gateway and here today with Dr. Damien Teo, he's focused his practice on TMD and sleep apnea so he's obviously an expert in this area and he shares some of his understanding about this crucial topic. If you want to learn more from Dr. Damien Teo, find his Facebook group Sleep and TMJ Study Club and you'll find out about all his courses and the free content he puts on that group. Now, if you're interested in this topic, we also had Dr. Harry Ball, who has been teaching on this topic for 20 years in Australia. That was episode 52. And then we also had Dr. David McIntosh, an ENT, talking mostly about pediatric patients, but touching on sleep apnea, especially in kids. And that was episode 16 from 2019. And at the end of this podcast, we have the OrthoEd segment. And this time, we're lucky enough to be with Dr. Jeff Hall, who runs OrthoEd. And we're talking about Mike Linchak. And he's looking at it, walking through the things he would be thinking about. Now, you can see this in video form on our social media, at Dental Head Start, Facebook, Instagram. And if you're interested in learning ortho, you can get 10%, the entire range of OrthoEd courses. If you go to our show notes, you'll find the codes. You can get online content. You can do the live mini masters and follow along what I'm learning. I hope these are useful and I hope this podcast with Dr. Damien Teo on sleep apnea really ignites that interest for you as he starts to talk about signs that you will see in your patients. I feel the most common sign or symptom a dentist will see in a sleep apnea patient is a patient coming in complaining of bruxism or grinding or they won't be complaining of bruxism but we see lots of teeth wear in their mouth. We may also see abstraction. We may also see maybe tori, would be palatal or lingual tori. Um, but I feel the main sign and symptom we dentists will see of a sleep apnea patient is bruxism. Now, what we have to understand is bruxism is not the condition. It is the symptom of an underlying condition, and it could be sleep apnea. Now, when we see these signs in our patients, that should then stimulate us to not think about making a splint. It should stimulate us to think about asking questions about sleep and breathing. So, if I've got a new patient coming in for a general checkup and clean, and I look in their mouth and I see their teeth are all worn down, I'll then say, hey, Mr. Jones, um, how well do you sleep at night? I'll then ask him, do you snore at night? Do you feel tired or fresh in the morning? Do you have any difficulty breathing through your nose? Um, I'll ask, does he have any history of tonsillitis or throat infections or nasal or sinus issues? And then I'll also be looking that when I do my exam, I'll look down his throat. I'll ask him to stick his tongue out. And I'll, when he sticks his tongue out, I'll check if I can see down his throat or if I can't. I'll also be checking if I can see his tonsils and if I can see them if they are large or if they are infected. So if we see any of these signs or symptoms, or if the patient is telling us, yes, I do snore, or I feel tired every morning I wake up, those should be more triggers to tell us, okay, they're ticking all these boxes that they could potentially have sleep apnea. 
Now, that was an adult. The same applies for kids. And it's even more important that we find these in kids because in kids, if they've got a sleep apnea condition, we can treat it and fix it by using orthodontics. If we don't treat the sleep apnea in kids, they're most likely going to keep having sleep apnea and sleep apnea does not go away by itself. It normally gets worse. So we've got a five-year-old kid who's bruxing, which many of us would have seen at some stage, and we don't identify sleep apnea, then by the time they're 15 or 20 years old, their sleep apnea is probably going to be a lot worse. We also have to realize that if they have sleep apnea at five years old, they're probably not sleeping well at night. And if they're kids, most of our growth, learning, and development occurs while we're sleeping. So sleep is so important to um, humans, especially for children. And if we're going to be denying them uh, their proper sleep and um, breathing at night while they're still growing, it's going to really impact not just their dental health, but their overall medical health in the long term. What kind of signs, um, particularly for kids, are you looking for? Is there anything specific? Mm, So... um, Biggest, um, well, for dentistry, the easiest signs and symptoms we would see in kids who have sleep apnea will be malocclusions. So, if we see any dental crowding or crossbites, um, open bites, um, huge overjets in particular, like especially if they've got the retrognathic mandibles, class two, division two, buck teeth, that sort of stuff, um, a narrow maxilla, narrow mandible, um, or just crowded teeth um, or crooked teeth. Those are all signs to me that the mouth is too small and the teeth can't fit inside the mouth. Now, yes, that is an orthodontic problem, but we have to realize the mouth is part of their skull and it's all part of their airway. So if the top and bottom jaw are too small, the tongue is still going to want to fit in there somehow. And the tongue can't fit inside a small top and bottom jaw. It's going to go straight back down our throat and block our airway. And that's when we can have snoring and sleep apnea. So some dentists may be aware already of the um, huge debate about um, doing extraction. There's non-extraction or expansion, non-expansion orthodontics. To me, I don't really care what sort of method is used as long as they're focusing on opening the airway and helping the person breathe better. Mm, Yeah, it can have such a big impact. It's a lifelong change. Mm, Definitely. Mm. So, with our um, adult patients and we're seeing these signs that make us want to ask the questions about sleep, what's the next steps? Mm. So, with adult patients, if um, let's go back to that uh, example I gave before. So, Mr. Jones came in, we see the wear and tear, we've asked him our questions, he tells us he snores at night, he feels tired in the morning, um, etc. So, let's say he needs no other dental work. The next thing I'll be telling him is I'll be telling him these signs and symptoms I've seen in his mouth of his bruxism, his snoring, his fatigue, and telling him it could be related to a condition called sleep apnea. I would then explain what sleep apnea is. So to people who don't know, sleep apnea is a chronic health condition, just like um, heart disease or diabetes. And basically, apnea means choking. So how the, how the mechanism of sleep apnea commonly works is when you lie down and sleep, your bottom jaw and throat can collapse and block your airway so you can't breathe. And that's when you can have snoring or choking, which is apnea. 
Now, some of these patients will also grind their teeth at night. The reason they're grinding their teeth is to tense the jaw and throat muscles to help open the airway so they can breathe better. So the grinding and wear and tear we've seen in our patient's mouth is not because um, it's a habit, it's because they're choking and they're trying to breathe better at night. So I'll give that explanation to the patient and then I'll tell them, I think if we want to treat this, we need to do a bit more investigation. And the um, only way to properly treat and diagnose uh, sleep apnea is to get a sleep study. So sleep studies can be done in two different ways. They can be done with um, a lab or hospital sleep study where a patient sleeps in a hospital lab overnight. Um, Or they can be a home sleep study, which are very accurate these days and can be just as accurate as a lab one. And that's what I normally refer for. I normally refer for a home sleep study, um, which will the patient just sleeps for one night at their own home, and then a few weeks later, we'll get the results. Now, commonly, I'll also be referring the patient or to a sleep physician or working with a sleep physician because sleep apnea, as I said, is a health sleep condition. And dentists legally aren't um, trained or qualified to diagnose the sleep apnea. So, we need to have the sleep physician on the team with us to be treating these patients. So I would recommend reaching out to the local sleep doctors in your area and saying, hey, I'm going to be treating sleep apnea. And most of them would know that dentists can treat sleep apnea. And I'm, um, some of them hopefully would be welcome to having a dentist they can work with and refer to um, to build a referral network. So reach out to your local sleep doctors first and tell them, hey, I'm looking to sleep apnea. Um, I'm going to be sending you some patients. Get that referral network and communication working and then you can make it easier process for your patients. Mm. So, what's the, the treatment options? Obviously, this is directed by the sleep physician, but where are we going from there? Mm, yeah, so... Um, You're correct in that the treatment options normally are directed by a sleep physician. However, if we are seeing signs of bruxism and maybe even TMD in some of these patients, the treatment from the sleep physician may not help the bruxism or may not help the TMD or it may make the bruxism or TMD worse. So, um, with sleep apnea in adults, there are only three main treatments we have. Well, actually, we don't have treatment. We have management. So, with sleep apnea, you can never cure it completely in an adult. Um, You can only manage and control it. So, we can um, control and manage it by, one, using CPAP, which is a breathing machine that sleep physicians would normally refer for um, or um, advise. Um, Second thing we can control and manage with is a mandibular advancement splint, and that's where us dentists come into play. And then the third management is surgery. And surgery is only um, recommended if there is some sort of blockage. So there's like tonsils or um, adenoids or the nose is blocked or if they're really overweight and they want to lose weight and gastric banding, weight reduction surgery can also help. And, um, oh yeah, and yeah, I wanted to mention about kids. So, I mentioned just then that um, with adults, we can only manage or control the sleep apnea. We can't cure it. But with kids, we can cure it because they're still growing. And how we can cure it is by doing the orthodontics, by growing and expanding their airways or helping their mouth and airways grow to their normal and bigger size. That's how we can optimally treat 
kids and also treat for sleep apnea and maybe underlying bruxism. What role does um, tonsils and adenoids play? We definitely hear that from the ENT community um, mm. and there's obviously multiple, multifactorial and every child's different. But what, what do you see? Mm, yeah, so tonsils and adenoids, that's, uh, when I see kids especially with a bruxism issue, let's say we've got a um, five-year-old kid coming in and the mum is saying he grinds his teeth all the time. I look inside the mouth and let's say they have no um, dental malocclusion issues. They've got a uh, good, um, good, good bite, class one occlusion, no crooked or crowding of the teeth, etc. Um, upper and lower jaw looks widely expanded. So the next thing I'd be thinking is, okay, the orthodontic malocclusion, um, orthodontic um, setup is looking good. Possibly there's an obstruction in their nose or in the back of their throat where I can't see, and that's where the tonsils or adenoids could be blocking the airway. So in kids, the tonsils or adenoids increase. Yeah, and they grow larger in size as we get older. So from about um, from birth to maybe around six or seven years old, the tonsils and adenoids keep growing larger and larger. Then around seven or eight years old is when the tonsils and adenoids start to shrink. But we've got a kid at five years old who's grinding. They'll have to wait three or four years until those tonsils and adenoids have shrunk for the grinding to stop. Now, if that's three or four years that they have to wait with grinding and potentially a breathing and sleeping problem, that's really going to affect their growth and development, learning, etc. So, if I'm seeing um, kids with bruxism and there's no um, orthodontic issues, I'll be then referring them to ENT, and it's going to be ENT that I know who looks at bruxism and sleep apnea, and get them to check the tonsils, adenoids, down the nose, etc., to make sure there's no obstructions. And I'd have to say 90% of the time I refer a kid with no orthodontic issues to an ENT, they'll find the tonsils or adenoids are large and blocking the airway. Yeah, so it's there's a cause. There's always something underlying for mm, a kid. Yeah. So, we talked a little bit about the treatment uh, modalities and one of them is obviously a mandibular advancement splint. That's mm. the key thing that a dentist, the tool we have to mm. treat this. Mm-hmm. Um, when, in what situations is that useful? Uh, how often do you use it? And Tell us a little bit about them. Yeah, so mandibular advancement splints are basically, as the name suggests, it advances or pushes the mandible forward. And by pushing the mandible forward, it also brings the tongue forward and also opens up the throat and the airway. So if the airway is more open, then more air can pass through. Snoring will reduce or stop and sleep apnea will also reduce or stop as well. Now, um, I only use I only use mandibular advanced splints in adults or non-growing patients. So that's why it's important if we see kids who are snoring out of sleep apnea, you won't give them a mass because uh, a mandibular advanced splint, which is a mass, it's an orthodontic appliance. It's like a twin block or functional appliance pulling the mandible forward. If we put give it in a kid, it's going to, well, it will probably help grow their mandible forward if they're a class two patient. But let's say they're class three. If we give them a mass, that's really going to worsen that class three. So in kids, that's where the orthodontics comes in. But in adults, um, that's where you would use a mandibular advanced splint because they're no longer growing. And it would open the airway, as I said, to help them breathe better. It will also have the added benefit of um, protecting their teeth if they are grinding. It can also um, what's it? It can also help with any TMD problems potentially, because as I mentioned in our TMD podcast, the disc normally slips forward, 
And if we want to bring the mandible forward onto a disc, the mandible and that's a splint can also do that. So that can sometimes also treat patients with TMD conditions. How do you make the most out of your CPD? I think the first step is to make sure you've chosen the right CPD. And how do you know that unless you've seen it all? cpdjunkie.com.au is made so that all of the dental CPD in Australia and New Zealand is in the one place. We've got all of the webinars, all of the live courses coming up on the website, easy to find and easy to filter. And the second step, well, it's all in the free ebook on their website, cpdjunkie.com.au, the home of Australian dental CPD. Thank you for supporting dental students and graduates and thank you for supporting the Dental Head Start podcast. So as you mentioned in the um, TMD podcast and the Bruxism podcast, sleep apnea is commonly a cause for these things um, and we can use, you know, sometimes splints are a useful tool. Um, are splints or, or mandibular advancement splints always going to be the, the tool of choice for a sleep apnea patient? Not always. So, um, in dentistry, um, that well, let me see. In dentistry, it is pretty much the main treatment modality we have available. But we have to realize that sleep apnea is a chronic health condition, and there are multiple um, core, uh, multiple. Um, factors which can worsen or cause sleep apnea. So, the most common cause is the bottom jaw and tongue collapsing and blocking the airway. However, uh, um, if the patient is a smoker, that's going to worsen sleep apnea. If the patient is overweight or doesn't exercise, uh, that's going to influence the sleep apnea. Um, if they've got large tonsils adenoids or they've got a um, broken nose, that's going to worsen the sleep apnea. So, for majority of the patients, the splint will be the gateway to um, help manage most of sleep apnea. But for some patients, it may not fix all of it, and they may need to look into other modalities as well as a mandible advancement splint. So some of my patients, if they're really bad sleep apnea, they're using a mandible advancement splint as well as CPAP. Um, I also do talk to my patients a lot about uh, weight management, um, exercise, um, diet, sleeping on their side, um, because if we sleep on our back, that's going to worsen sleep apnea. So if they sleep on their side, that's a lot more comfortable. Um, I also do recommend all of them to talk to and see a sleep physician regularly because um, some of them could have other underlying health issues, such as like high blood pressure or um, heart disease or um, reflux, which are all related to sleep apnea. And those are all out of our field as dentists to manage. So they need a health professional, whether it be the GP or a sleep physician, looking after them for these issues as well. It's so interesting when you learn more about this, how interrelated all these things are and how often you see it. Mm. All the time, we, we, I see patients that I pick up these kinds of things and um, you know, talk about it and then they have high blood pressure. They've also got some reflux and mm. it all just ties in yeah. or they're just tired all day. Yeah. Um, one of the things I do see is a patient may come in and they've got sleep apnea um, and they've already got a CPAP machine, but they've got significant wear on their teeth mm. um, for the obvious reasons we've discussed. Mm. Um, in that Patient, would you recommend a, a standard Michigan splint with the CPAP or are you going to have to then go towards a, a MAS? Mm, yeah, so um, in that situation, I would first be um, asking them if how well they're tolerating a CPAP. So 
CPAP is the gold standard treatment for um, sleep apnea because it works much more effectively than splints because it's actually pumping air into the airway. Um, however, the compliance of CPAP is very low. Over about four or five years, the number of patients who stick to their CPAP drops to only maybe 40% of people still using it. So um, if you have a patient who comes in with a CPAP um, and you see wear and tear, first thing I'd be asking them is how often they use a CPAP. If they use it all the time at night and they're happy with it and they've used it for like five, 10 years, then I'd say just keep using it. And if we do want to make a splint, I would tell them there's two options. They can have a normal Michigan splint to stop the grinding, um, to protect their teeth from the grinding. Or we could even make them a mandibular advancer splint, which will still protect the teeth from grinding, but can also manage their sleep apnea, and they may not need to use a CPAP as much. Now, the big difference between a Michigan splint and a mass is the cost. So uh, when we use a mass, the cost generally in Australia ranges from maybe about 1800 to 2500 I even know a dentist um, in Sydney who charges three and a half grand for a mass. <laughs> and, uh, but what we have to realize is this cost is not just for the mass, it's also for treatment and reviews over 12 months normally. Um, and patients don't realize this. They normally think, oh, that's $2,000 for a piece of plastic in my mouth. I don't want to pay that. I'll just take the cheaper splint. But normally with a Michigan splint, we're not having to do as many reviews and or we may not even need to do reviews. We're just giving them a splint, they wear it to protect their teeth and that's it and they normally have no other problems. Well, with sleep apnea, since it's a chronic health condition that are going to help for life, have for life, um, we need to have that constant um, monitoring of them regularly. So yeah, going back to that patient, I'd be giving them those two options, presenting them the costs and just be telling them outright, it's perfect up to them what they want, whether they want the Michigan splint or the mass. Now, let's say it's a different patient, comes in with CPAP, um, but he's not using it. He doesn't like it. It's uncomfortable. In that patient, if they've got wear and tear, I'll be telling him, ideally, they need a mandible advancement splint because it will protect their teeth, but it will also treat their sleep apnea. And I'll be telling him, the sleep apnea is what's causing the bruxism and the sleep apnea is what's breaking down their teeth. So then they'd be more, and most of these patients, they'd probably be interested to treat their sleep apnea because they found the CPAP wasn't working, they're feeling tired and crap during the day. They want something that can um, treat the sleep apnea and it's also going to protect their teeth. That's an added bonus as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I always, uh, when I'm talking with those kinds of patients, I I'm concerned about the teeth long term. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I'm a little bit concerned about making sleep apnea worse with the Michigan splint. Is mm. that something to worry about or is that generally not a problem? Yeah, that is definitely something to worry about. Um, and there are a few studies out there which have shown that um, a flat plane Michigan splint can worsen sleep apnea in um, people with sleep apnea. So, um, quite a few dentists may know this study. Um, it had a very small sample size, only 10 patients. Um, but what they found in this um, study was um, when they put them, these patients had sleep apnea and snoring. When they made them a splint for grinding, their snoring and sleep apnea worsened by up to 50%. So that can take someone from mild sleep apnea all the way to severe sleep apnea. 
And yes, it was a very small sample size of only 10 patients, but there have been a few other studies which have looked into this as well, and they have shown similar results that when you put a Michigan splint in the mouth of a sleep apnea or snorer, it will make their snoring sleep apnea worse. So regardless if the results or sample size is small, if they're still showing that um, we could worsen their airway, uh, worsen their sleep apnea, it's not too difficult for us to say, hey, you know, if you want to splint, before we make it, maybe we should just do a sleep study, wait for extra two or three weeks to get the sleep study results back. And if it shows you don't have sleep apnea, then I'll make that Michigan splint. But if it does show you have sleep apnea, I'm going to make you a different splint, which will help your bruxism as well as treat this health condition that you have. Yeah, and I think that really sums everything up. This is a mm. complex thing that can be shown to us in many different ways mm. and we need to understand it, but we we need to just register that that might be happening. Yeah. And if so, go down the path of treatment. Thank mm. you, Damien, Theo. You, you've really shared so much with this and the bruxism and the TMD um, segments we've done. I appreciate your time so much. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Dave. A pleasure. And Damien, you've mentioned it a few times. Um, how can people find you? And is it okay if people have questions to ask you directly? More than welcome, yes. Yeah. So, um, I have a few platforms people can find me on. Um, I have a Facebook, um, a private Facebook group called uh, Sleep and TMJ Study Club where any dentist is welcome to join. I also have a Teachable where I have some free and paid um, lecture content on TMD and sleep-related um, issues. That's uh, sleeptmjstudyclub.teachable.com. And I am also on Facebook, just Damien Tio. So people are more than welcome to send me a Facebook message or friend me on Facebook um, or post questions on my Facebook group. Um, people, are, lots of dentists are already doing that already. So always happy to um, take on questions and help teach or mentor people if they need any help. That's fantastic. I think you're you're a gentleman and you're sharing your knowledge and, and helping raise the bar um, on these crucial topics. So, thank you, Dr. Tammy and Teo. No worries, Dave. Thank you. Welcome to the OrthoEd segment. Uh, again, we're joined with Dr. Jeff Hall, the founder of OrthoEd and educator there. Um, and we're talking about me and my case. Um, we've done two episodes, one on the diagnosis, one on the uh, risks or the brief risks. And today we're going to talk actually about what we might do with my ClinCheck. What are the next steps you might ask your aligner company to do um, to get the result that we're looking for? So welcome again to the OrthoEd segment, Jeff Hall. Thanks, Dave. So, we, we talked a bit about this in the diagnosis. I have a space issue, but class one canine and molar, that's actually can be a challenging case. And therefore, we're thinking we might be removing 3-2 to allow us space, lower risks of uh, recession on my lower teeth. Um, do you want to take it from there, Jeff? Yeah, I, I, think, we've made, I think we've made the decision of removal of the 3-2. So, the clean checks come back. And have, what would I be looking at? The first, well, the first thing is what everybody does and probably what most people only do, <laughs> on a result. Yeah. And we're going to look at that and say, hey, is that, is that a good result or not? Okay. Would that, be accept would that be acceptable? So that would be our first part. And that doesn't look, that doesn't look too bad. So that doesn't look too bad. So now, but the, uh, the next part, which is people don't do, is one, we're going to look at the staging of the movement, mm -hmm. and then two, we want to look at the attachments. 
In that order, is that right? Yeah, basically, yes. So, what's when I so we would just we move this across step by step, and this is really good. What what David's done here by gaining space, measing on distal to that tooth, is now going to give better encapsulation of the aligner for that tooth to move. Now, I would have done probably the same on that canine as well. Good. So I would have done the same on the canine. And we use, a, so you've actually, you've actually done that and you've actually started to do that. And we use a term called gable bends. So what we would have done is we would have added seven and a half degrees of distal crown tip or mesial root tip on mm -hmm. both those teeth because otherwise you've got an orthodontic force once again on the crown, which is going to tip those teeth. Mm. So that would have been one part that we would have that we would be changing. So we're trying to limit our tipping. We want to get torque. We want to get root movement. We want to, we want to get more root movement. That's so a good we want tip. To limit the tipping of the crowns, and we want more root movement. So when I look at that, and now because we've done it this way, I, I would I would be thinking, and I'm sure that's the case. There will be far less expansion required on the lower arch because. You don't need to get the space. You don't need to get as much space. You you may end up with a little bit of a black triangle. Mm. We resolve that later on. Once again, it comes back to the previous podcast that we talked about where you could end up you know, telling your patient that they might need some composite buildup. It's a mm. sort of get-out-of-jail course. So I'd be, look, I'd be looking at your... Uh, at your movements, and the, so let's look at the uh, let's look at the upper upper arch as well. So I'd be looking at it, and you can see the difference in alignments that you've mm. got in the upper arch compared to the lower arch. And I would be ensuring that we've got passive aligners here, because otherwise, you would end up with a situation where the upper aligners are going to break, and you're going to yeah. So I'd be making sure that I've got passive aligners that would continue at the same time. So. Your patient wants a fresh aligner if they can have one, obviously. Exactly right. Yeah. Absolutely, because there's no extra cost for it. Can I ask something quickly about, um, so we're removing the tooth. We've got a slight crossbite with the canine maybe. Is yeah. there going to be any issue with that? Well, I think once you remove that tooth, yeah. you're gonna, that's going to make it much easier. So when you, once you get to that state, and, that's a real, and by removing that tooth, now I wouldn't be moving that upper left lateral part of the staging until we bring the canine in a bit. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. Because otherwise you theoretically got a bit of diffusal interference hmm. as you move that across. And you'd say to me, but you've got the aligners in the But that's all great until they're eating and yeah. them out. And then, yeah, so then you would end up with more of the diffusal interference. So I would be delaying the movement of this lateral. Considering you've got 37 lower aligners, you can slow down the movement mm. yes, of the upper as well. That's good. So Let's talk about – oh, go on, sorry. Go on. I was going to say, let's talk a bit about the attachments you might choose. Um, yeah, good. So when I look at the lower arch, just to start off with, okay, so I'm just going to look at the lower arch because this could be, yeah, an hour conversation. Exactly. <laughs> the first thing, I, so you've got a three-millimeter rectangular attachment here. I would like to have at least a four-millimeter. Mm -hmm. The bigger the attachment, the better. Now, on your canine here, these are the optimized attachments that Invisalign like to put on. The, your active surface is only here and here. Now, if when you put your attachments on and you take away a tenth of a millimetre, 
you've lost your active service. So I personally think these optimised attachments are just a marketing ploy. And if you speak to the people with knowledge, they will all say the same thing. So I would remove that and put another long rectangular attachment on. Mm. So these attachments, I think, are useless. I really do. Mm -hmm. Some people like them. So now I can't find the lower, where the lower table is. Um, uh, Just click lower left. It says upper or lower. There's two little checkpoints just there. Yep. Click. Okay. So here we are. So here we are where we've got intrusion of all of these anterior teeth. Mm. So what you need what you need is a horizontal attachment posteriorly to act as an anchor to support the reciprocal side effects. So without that, you ain't going to get the you, you're not going to get the intrusion. Mm, but I'm going to ask what, I'm going to ask you this question straight away. Why do you want intrusion? Because you've got a minimal overbite. Mm. So what, you, so works, what yeah. they've done is they play an intrusion of all your lower anterior teeth and then they're planning extrusion of your uppers. If you eliminate most of that intrusion, you probably don't need to extrude your uppers. Mm. Now you've got a far more predictable result. Mm. That's just to mm. start off with. Okay? That's, that's a great point. So thinking about the reciprocal, like what we're doing to the bottom arch means we have to do something to the top arch, vice versa, and yeah. perhaps that's actually can be netted out. Yeah, that's Absolutely. fantastic. Like your three, three, for example, got 6.6 millimetres of extrusion. What part, what part of your attachment, because this is your active surface, what part is pushing on that tooth to extrude it? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> so you would, have, you would have what we call, what we would do is a sash attachment. Yeah which is an angled horizontal attachment because you've done our module four. That's right. I learned that in the Alana course with you and that's something I might even do a whole segment on that and other attachments that I've learned through your courses because it's a really interesting one that has that two factors, the two um, vectors of force. Yep. It's great. There's there's lots of things that I would actually change here, honestly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your three, your three, six, some intrusion, See, I wouldn't have a problem doing a little bit of posterior intrusion for you because you've got a minimal overbite. Mm, mm. So that wouldn't worry me to do. And you're going to get some intrusion anyway with the two pieces of plastic, and then you're going to get some rotation of your mandible forward. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I don't have a problem with that at all. Mm. But I think, yeah, the keys to what I'm looking at is obviously the final position, making sure everything looks good. That's what everybody looks at. But more importantly is the staging of the treatment and then the attachments. And you've done a really good job, David, with how you've staged that lower incisor. And you could you could ask them for a pontic there. Mm. But once again, I see how you when you've got the pontic, how you're touching that the distal surface of that tooth. Mm-hmm. So I would be saying to them, with the pontic, if you're going to use a pontic, make sure you keep the surface of the teeth totally free so that the aligner can encapsulate the surface. Exactly. That's the goal. Well, Jeff, um, that one little bit that I added to this, I haven't done anything about attachments or anything else, is because I actually learned it in your course. So uh, thanks. Um, <laughs> that's the point of this, this segment as well, because I am obviously doing the mini masters. I look forward to everything else I learn. I hope that it gives some some people a little bit of thought process. Think about final result, then staging, then attachments. All are crucial. Thanks, Dr. Jeff Hall, so much for your time. David, thank you and 
and I hope that I can impart some knowledge into the young dentists and, <laughs> and uh, just open their eyes because one of my pet peeves, you know, and I hate to say this, if, you, if you're not modifying this, mm-hmm. there's no reason why you should be doing a line of therapy and not Smile Club Direct because that's what they do. They just hit the button, they press approve. This is the thought process. Exactly. And after being involved in thousands of cases, I can tell you there's not one case that we haven't gone back with at least two or three times. Absolutely. This is where we earn our money in aligners. The, the functional action that we do, you know, anyone, well, not anyone, but like our therapists can do that. We can have our team help us. Right. This is where we earn our money. This is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeff. David, thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists. Thank you.